So we are picking up Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 1, and you might say, hey, there's a little bit of 9 left last uh, week. We didn't finish that. Uh, that is a story about Peter who goes and um, heals a woman uh, named Tabitha, who it says in the text, I just have to bring this up, it says in the text that Tabitha was also called Dorcas. I'm like, good call going with Tabitha. Uh, we had a girl named Tabitha in our youth group growing up, and I used to always be like, Dorcas, Dorcas, and I was the worst. Um, so, yeah, the 13-year-old version of me, uh, many of you would not be cool with. Um, so, all that to say, Peter is now uh, staying with someone named Simon the Tanner, and he is uh, going to be called uh, out of Joppa is where he is. He's going to be called out this week, and that's kind of the beginning of this section that we're in here. It just kind of switches from Paul to Peter. It's almost like you see these little vignettes. It's like, okay, last time on Acts, this is what happened. Now we're into uh, this. So we're going to pick it up with 10 verse 1, and this is uh, picking up a whole other story. We were in with Paul last week, or Saul, and now we're going to be with Peter this week. So chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three uh, in the afternoon, he had a vision. And yours might say the ninth hour, the ninth hour, three o'clock, same thing. So we, we meet a guy named Cornelius here in the beginning of this section, and it, this is coming off of understanding where Peter is, and then it switches to Cornelius, but this is still Peter's story. And we realize that there's something weird about this, this centurion from the beginning, um, he is a devout, God-fearing person. He is monotheistic in his religious um, inclination. He, we find out later he's well-respected by the entire Jewish community. We also see that he is praying at the proper time that a Jew would pray, the third hour uh, or the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. They would have prayed at noon. They would have prayed at three. They would have prayed in the evening as well. So he was on the prayer schedule of a Jew. He was monotheistic in his um, observation of his religion, and he was somebody respected by the Jewish community. But as a, a Gentile, there's only so far that you could get within the Jewish community. So he was basically at that court of the Gentile stage. Everybody respected him. Everybody liked him. He was a great guy. He was monotheistic, which is really interesting. When the Christians are referred to by uh, Romans uh, in the, that day and age, they called them pagans because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods. They worshiped a one god. Um, and so he has kind of taken up the Jewish practice of monotheism. And a centurion is a, an important person. Basically, the idea of a century is that they basically run a uh, hundred soldiers are, are beneath them within the military system. So he was somebody who was highly respected. You think of somebody who has to get the respect of a hundred people in order to, to, you know, uh, to be able to lead them. I mean, I think that that sounds sort of pastoral. You got to have about a hundred people's respect in order to have a little church. It sounds like he's got the respect of his soldiers. He's got the respect of the Jewish community. He's monotheistic. He's praying at the right times. He's doing all the right, the right things. He's pretty good and pretty religious. I think most people would have respected him. They would say, this is a pretty good dude. Now, in our, in our society, the way that we look at kind of religion and the way we kind of look at, like, what's going to happen to us when we pass away, I think most people would say, hey, if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven, right? If you're a good person, you're better than most people, you're going to go to heaven. There's some sort of like competition between people to see who's in the top 50%, the bottom 50%, and the good people go to heaven and the bad people don't go to heaven. And you know, the problem with that is that everybody thinks they're in the top 50%. 
But that's not even how it works. This guy would have been seen by everybody as somebody who was great. Has it together, is kind, is loving, is monotheistic, is worshiping God at the right, doing all the right stuff, leading people, probably somebody who was highly respected in the community. And we're going to find out he's not any closer to knowing God than somebody who was living completely the opposite way. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the struggle of some of the Pharisees who came to know Jesus. Some of them came in, you know, living a perfect lifestyle in the eyes of the Jews. But then they come to Jesus and they say, well, what do we need to do to be saved? And it's like, oh, you, don't, you haven't even begun. It's, it's a rebirth process. You're not, you're not like 90% of the way there. You're like not even close to there. You need to let go of all of your religion to be able to understand what it means to follow Jesus. He was a good person, but now he's still seeking after uh, what it means to follow, follow God. So he's praying. Uh, he's, you know, a, a good God-fearing person. And then we, we pick it up here. It says, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius, uh, sorry, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So, Simon the Tanner is where Simon Peter is staying in Joppa. Simon the Tanner, you think he lives by the sea. He goes out all day and just tans all day. I worked on that one. Uh, Not what a tanner is. He tanned hides. He tanned dead animal skins, essentially made leather. Um, This would have been an interesting place for Peter to be staying. Uh, The Jews never were around dead things. It it could make them ceremonially unclean. They would have to go through a process of becoming clean again before they could be back in the temple worshiping. And so Peter would have stayed away from somebody who was around dead skins all the time. His house would have been unclean. Simon the Tanner would have been unclean. He wouldn't have been around him. And yet God is starting to pull back or or break down some of the walls that Simon Peter has in his religion that's going to cause him uh, there are going to be problems in the church if he holds on to some of these religious practices. There's some things he's stripping away. He's stripping away from, from Peter. And so he's staying with this tanner, and basically Cornelius sends his people. And I, and I want to stop and say that uh, Cornelius here, um, he, well, actually, he's going to say it here in the next section. So let's go on with verse 7. Um, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Like, uh, stop and think about that. So Simon, or uh, Cornelius has a devout soldier who's one of his attendants. So Cornelius' faith is even affecting the people around him in a way that's causing them to now have faith, right? His devoutness is rubbing off on other people. We're gonna see his family, some of his soldiers, other people in the community, no doubt, so he's somebody who's living out his, his religion in a way that's causing other people to follow him into that. So he sends his devout soldier and one of his attendants and, and uh, sends them to Joppa. About noon, the following day, switches to Joppa here, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Notice that God is meeting these people in prayer. Oftentimes we don't take time to pray, we don't spend time in prayer. I, I just want to stop and say, you want to meet with God, like, that's where you just start there. Make prayer part of your daily life. Make prayer part of your routine. Make prayer part of your daily 
rhythm. I mean, prayer doesn't have to be super difficult to do. It doesn't have to be at a specific time like these guys are doing it. It can be kind of a every moment with God sort of thing that you just regularly are in contact with with Jesus, just asking the Holy Spirit to be involved in what's going on and to show you what you're supposed to be doing and to guide you and lead you on a daily basis, okay? So Peter's up praying. Uh, sorry, let me find my place. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You've heard of hangry? This is like a hungry trance, okay? So there's something going on here with with Peter, but he's finding himself in this weird trance-like state. I don't know what it looks like. I don't really know what it, but this is the Holy Spirit reaching out to him, doing something, showing him, giving him a vision. And I don't know if you've ever had something so vivid that felt like a vision from God. I have often in my own life, if I can just share personally for a second, you might think this is weird. I, it's, it is what it is. I have had dreams that felt so real that I followed them the next day and they were exactly what I had in the dream. God does speak to us through dreams and visions. It, this is not something that ceased in the Bible. God still, all of these gifts are still available to us as believers. And so you test them. When you feel like God is speaking to you, you test that. You ask for the opinions of other people. You test it against scripture. You, in, uh, in, in the New Testament, it tells us that any spirit that we're not sure of, we, we, we test it by seeing if it is obedient to Christ, if it's obedient to his word. So we look at those things and we decide. So this picture has come to Peter in this moment. And so this is what Peter saw. He said he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And uh, it, this large sheet could be translated like a sail, like a sail for like a sailboat. Right? You think about Peter being a fisherman. This was something he was familiar with, right? It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So God is challenging Peter's religious, uh, the places where he's kind of held up by religion. And you think like, why is food such a big deal? Because Jews, the, the kosher part of their diet was everything to them. It represented how devout they were in serving God. When they followed the, the customs of what they could and could not eat, I mean, it meant things like, I mean, like, just being a kosher is awful. No lobsters, no shrimp. Can't put cheese on a burger, okay? That, that's a crazy one. Uh, no bacon. Like, I, listen, again, I will say this, because I will always say this, you know, Jesus went to the cross for many, many reasons, one of the reasons was that we could have barbecue, okay? Like, it's, it's okay, I'm, I'm off of it. But just his religion was tied up in how he was eating, and so all the unclean animals were represented on the sheet, all the things he knew he shouldn't eat. And you, you have to think about how reviled he might have felt when he saw them, because to him, this is like if you really dislike something, like, you really don't, like, maybe sushi is one of those things that kind of, like, divides a lot of people, right? I love sushi. I will eat sushi every single day. But some people are like, oh, stuff from the sea. I'm not eating that. <laughs> and that feeling of disgust, there's plenty of people like this, I promise you. Yeah, there are some nods, and there are some people. That's the one that divides. I'm just saying, okay. 
That disgust that you feel when there's something you don't want to eat is what he felt when he looked at all of those things. He probably felt a physical disgust in him, like, no way I'm going to eat this stuff. And you have to stop and ask the question, why? Why was this such an important thing? And what he can't see here, what he doesn't understand, what will not even kind of come through even in this story, is you just got to fast forward to the idea that the church was going to be a place where there was neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, that there were going to be different types of people having to be unified together in one place. That as Paul says, it was going to be a dividing wall of hostility that would be disassembled brick by brick to bring people together. And one of the things that connected the church more than anything else, it's our sixth value, was what? Food. Now imagine going to a potluck in the first century when you have Jews and Gentiles coming together. And imagine a Gentile brings in a crock pot with, or a slow cooker, sorry, it's Minnesota, with, with pork in it, with shrimp in it. Imagine the disunity that happens within the community of people when things that are clean, that are okay to eat, that, that don't necessarily follow the ceremonial laws of the Jews, but now are okay. It's part of the, the, the story of the church to kind of create room for people, to create this unified place. Just think about how Peter would have had to change the way that he even ate to create unity within the church. We start to think about this sermon thinking that this is about Cornelius. This is not about Cornelius, it's about Peter. Like Cornelius is about to accept Christ, his whole family's about to accept Christ, he's about to have a big party, and everyone's going to accept Christ, and the Holy Spirit's going to drop, and it's going to be amazing. But this story is about stripping away the religion of Peter so that he can create unity in the church and bring together slaves and masters who would worship together in the church and Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews worshiping together in the church, men and women being treated with the same amount of dignity and respect within the church. Is anybody hearing this? This is what the church looks like. And I wonder what that looks like for us today if we were going to say, okay, slave and free, male and female, Jew and non-Jew, what we would say today, if we were saying, what does it look like to have unity in our church? Does it mean that Republicans and Democrats worship together? Does it mean that every single race is welcome within the walls of this church? Does it mean every socioeconomic status is welcome within the walls of this church that we somehow find unity in places where nowhere else in society there is unity? You look around and you find the most separated we've ever been as a culture, right? It feels that way to me, that there's just everyone vilifying each other and setting up straw man arguments and taking cheap shots and, you know, just continuing to separate and separate and separate and separate. And the church is a place where we are unified because it's not about any of those things. It's about Christ. Jesus is what brings us together. And Peter is going to need to have his religion stripped away from him bit by bit until he figures out that God's plan is to reach everybody, not just people exactly like him. And I think there are a lot of Christians today that would be just as comfortable sitting in a church where everybody is like them. And they, they, they circle up around issues that are not the central issue that is what should be the most important thing in a church. They're not centered around Jesus they're centered around a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus. They're centered around a justice-filled Jesus with no gospel or a gospel-filled Jesus with no effect on the world. 
They're centered around, you know, a Jesus who is white or a Jesus who is non-white or a Jesus who, like, they just take Jesus and they make him whatever they want him to be and they center, they circle around that thing and then the church loses its effectiveness and preaches a gospel that seems to look like the gospel but lacks in power and there's no unity in the church and everybody tears each other down. Before long, that church is worthless. And God is training Peter. He's training him to understand that religion will not bring him to the place that he needs to be. And I remember as a teenager, I had this friend. Uh, he was like this cool guy who was in a band. And he was like barely, you know, he's one of those guys like, I don't really fit in church. But here I am, I'm at church, but I don't really fit here. And he wore this shirt that said, religion kills. And I was like 15, and I'm like, what does that even mean? I don't know, but I love it. What does that shirt mean? Religion kills. And so I asked him, I'm like, dude, what, is this, what does your shirt mean? You know, and he said it so eloquently, and I remember it being like a light bulb going off. Like, religion never brings you to Jesus. Religion never gets you close to God. The stuff that you do is not the stuff that brings you close to God. Jesus is not just trying to change Peter's behavior. He's trying to change his heart. Your behavior flows out of your heart. So, like, you could do all the right stuff. You could, you know, go through all the motions, go to the groups, do the thing, you know, whatever, open the Bible, have conversations about Jesus, argue with people, whatever, all this stuff, and you could be no closer to God than where you started because religion doesn't bring you any closer to God. Your heart changes first, and your behavior flows out of that. And if you find yourself going through the motions, then you don't know Christ. He has to be central to what we're doing. And that's what's going to happen here with Peter. You may need to shed parts of your religious upbringing. I know Baptists who worship the Bible and not Christ. I know Catholics who still think they need to pay for their sin through pen penitence. I can't even say that word. I know Lutherans who might need to search the scriptures on some of the traditions that they hold dear and question. I know mainline people who grew up in the mainline church who may need to find a more pure form of the gospel. The question is, where is God challenging your religion and calling you out into something more like what he's calling Peter to here? And how do you know? How do you know if you're in a place like that? The question is, what is ultimately the most important thing? Do you think that your relationship with Jesus is where you're drawing that strength from? Or is it the form of religion that you happen to be born into and happens to be part of your tradition? Will you let God's word and the Holy Spirit change your mind, even if you don't love the idea that he's changing your mind? And will you shed those traditions if you need to? How do you search for answers? I feel like nobody comes and asks an expert on the Bible what the Bible has to say about it. What they do is they go to Google and they say, why am I right and why is everyone else wrong? Why is the way that I believe right and why is everybody else's viewpoints wrong? And then we proof text a piece of scripture from the Bible and we say, look, this is, it's in the Bible. We don't care about the, what the whole Bible has to say about it. We don't care what Jesus' example was or what his words were. We found a text, it proved our thing, and now we're set in our ways. No way. If the scripture doesn't change the way that you think and challenge your, your preconceived ideas of what is, you know, religion is, then you have missed it. It should be changing us and shaping us for our entire lives. So God is attempting to break Peter's religious chains so that he can lead a unified church. He's trying to change his heart. 
He's trying to tear down walls that will keep him from having a unified church. Wall number one, he's staying with Simon the Tanner. Here we go, 15. We're going to pick it up and go a little faster here. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back. So Peter finds himself arguing with the Holy Spirit about whether he should be eating anything that's unclean. And he doesn't even necessarily understand what this is about. But you think about this, it happened three times. That was the same amount of time that Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep after he was restoring him from his sin of, of, of basically abandoning him on the cross. There's something actually quite sensitive here in the way that God is dealing with Peter, sort of setting him up with this vision and doing it three times and almost like coaxing him into the idea that everything's going to change for him in a minute. While Peter was wondering what this meaning of, the meaning was of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went downstairs and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man. Like, that was his... Uh, you know, everybody saw him that way as a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to come and ask for you to come to this house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. By the way, didn't check with Simon the Tanner, who I'm sure was like, what are you doing? You're inviting Gentiles, non-Jewish people into my home, right? Wall number two, broken down. He's first staying with Simon the Tanner, who's unclean, and now he's inviting Gentiles into the home to stay with them, to have a sleepover. Must have been awkward. Wall coming down. So it says, the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived at Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi, by the way, if you're wondering. There are multiple Caesareas, because all Caesarea meant was Caesar. There was multiple cities named after Caesar. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. By the way, th he's Italian. Everybody's invited to the party when you're Italian. If you've never had Sunday supper at an Italian's house, they cook the like pasta, the, the pasta sauce for like two days. I'm from the East Coast. This is a very common thing. Everybody's over at their house. It's a big party. You're all welcome to come. They make way too much food. Okay, just me. This, this is the way the Italians roll. So it says... Uh, uh, Cornelius has a house full of people there to hear what's going to happen. Uh, yep, here we go. All right, the next day Peter started out and they arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself and I don't want to beat this issue like the dead horse that it is, but do not worship men or women for that matter, or anyone. Worship Jesus only. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put Aaron on a pedestal. Don't put Bobby on a pedestal. Don't put Megan on a pedestal. Don't put Lauren on a pedestal. We don't want to be up there. We're just like you. We are seeking after Jesus the same way that you are. We are the same as you. Don't worship us. He corrects him immediately. Peter went inside, uh, uh, sorry, I'm here somewhere. He says, I am only a man myself. 
don't worship me. That is the beginning of a huge problem. Whenever the church worships the pastors or the people that are in charge, it is all downhill from that moment. Verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people, because he's Italian. Uh, He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Just, Just think about this for a second. Peter is saying to him, I never go into the house of a Gentile, a non Jewish person. I've never done this before. You know, because you're a devout person and you follow the customs of the Jews, you know that I shouldn't be here, that I wouldn't be here. This is weird for me. This is not normal for me. Now go back in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 where it says things like the the Jews uh, broke bread and and worshiped God together in their homes. Right? When they did communion, it wasn't like doing communion quickly in a service. They had a full meal. They ate together in each other's homes. This is what it says about the first church. They were all together and ate in each other's homes. In in chapter 4, it says they went. And in chapter 5, it says they went from house to house preaching the gospel. They kept inviting themselves into the next house and the next house and the next house. And Peter has never been in the home of a non-Jewish person until this moment. What was the church up until this point? It was racist. All Jewish. The church in Jerusalem was all Jewish. No Gentiles were part of that house-to-house part of it. No Gentiles were invited into the inner part of the church. They were always kept at the outside, always kept in the court for the Gentiles, always kept on the outside. And God is like, I am not going to let Peter continue to run an organization that's going to be racist. This is the beautiful part about the gospel, and I've talked about this before, that this is one of the most inclusive things in the entire world. The gospel works in every single culture on the earth. The gospel adjusts and looks different in every single culture on the earth. If you've ever traveled or done any missions, you find yourself, you know, I've been now to many places, Mexico and Albania, like parts of the world that are completely different, Grenada, Barbados, parts of the West Indies, And I will tell you that each one of those churches, there's something the same at the core of what we are doing when we worship, but they look completely different. Even yesterday I had a conversation with somebody and they're like, tell me about your church. How long are your services? I'm like, well, they're about an hour and 15 minutes if I'm I'm preaching the right amount of time. Um, Sometimes I get, it gets away from me. And they're like, oh, that's great. I come, my church, my church I used to go to was two and a half hours. Like, Even within our own culture, the gospel looks different in every single culture. You you put the gospel in South America, and it looks like a South American gospel. It reaches people in South America. You put the gospel in in Mexico, it reaches people in Mexico. You put the gospel in Africa, it reaches people in Africa. It looks African. The, The gospel is not racist at all. In fact, it's the most inclusive thing you can possibly find, and it looks like every culture it finds itself in, and it reaches people in every one of those cultures. Why? And this is one of our absolute core values. We think the gospel is good news for all people, not just rich people, not just white people, not just some people, not just men, not just women, not just, you know, Jews and non-Jews. It's for everyone, every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every person on the earth. 
And the gospel, if you keep Jesus at the core, can look like the culture in some way and reach the people in that place. When Paul goes and starts preaching in the Roman world, he changes up his method on how to reach people and starts to speak to them in their vernacular and preach to them a gospel that makes sense to them. It transfers to every place. It is definitely not meant to create one type of church that needs to get reinstated every single place on the earth and cause all those cultures to change to make sure that they... I mean, that, that's what the rest of religions look like. The further away you get from the center of whatever religion you're talking about, the like, harder it is for that, that religion to reach people in the world. The center of Islam, the further out you get, the weaker it gets. The center of Catholicism, the further out you get, the weaker it gets. The center of Hinduism and Buddhism and whatever, the, this, the further away you get, the harder it gets. But not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It works everywhere because everybody's invited into it. Paul, Peter is just having these things stripped away from him. So he says, why did you send for us? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was at my house praying at this hour. Three in the afternoon, suddenly a man with shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has uh, heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now that you are here in the presence of God, listen to everything Sorry, now that you're here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. And look what Peter says. He gives a very distinct, very forward gospel presentation. I now realize how true it is that God, what God has shown, sorry, let me read. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and who does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That is what we preach here, the good news of peace of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Our messages here are about Jesus. They are centered in the gospel. They are for all people. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went through doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in that country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one whom God commanded, or sorry, God appointed as judge of the living and of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter has finally understood what Jesus has been trying to tell him through this vision that the things that he considered to be unclean are not unclean. 
clean, that they're clean, that they're ready to receive the gospel, that he can go into their homes and he can eat with them, and he can spend time with them, and he can reach out to them. And all of these preconceived religious ideas are being stripped away from him so he can create a unified church. So there's going to be way more on this. Chap- chapter 15, he's going to have to stand up to all the Jews who say, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be Jewish first. And he's going to go, nope, nope. I have seen the gospel come to the Gentiles myself. We do not have to follow the, the, the customs of the Jews to become followers of Christ. The gospel is good news to all. It is good news to religious people, to licentious people, to men, to women, to every class, to every political persuasion, to everyone. Verse 41, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even among the Gentiles. The Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. They would avoid them in the streets so they wouldn't become unclean by even rubbing against them. They would keep them in the court that was away from the inner parts of the temple. They were absolutely astonished that the Holy Spirit had been given to these Gentile dogs. And they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So my question for you is, what remnants of religion is God stripping away from you so that we can create a more unified church? What house of what Gentile is he calling you into to be comfortable with people who don't know Christ, to see them as someone that God is trying to reach through you? I mean, yes, this is about Cornelius. I mean, they received the Holy Spirit, which is a monumental moment. We've seen these strategic places where Jesus has reached out with the gospel. We've seen him reach out in Samaria. We've seen him reach out to Africa through the Ethiopian eunuch. We've seen him reach to Saul, who's going to go and preach to the entire Roman world. And now we've seen a Gentile completely out of the mix of what it meant to even be a a believer who was trying to find his way into the church but couldn't now be completely accepted in and given the Holy Spirit. God is doing strategic things to move the gospel through the entire known world at the time, but he's also reaching the Jewish religious sect and saying to them, you are no longer the center of everything that's going on here and you're going to need to change to bring everybody together. I got to strip away a lot of religion in your life. And you might have grown up in religion. You might have grown up with a tradition that for you has become religion, has become like a thing that you are just like, This is how it is. This is how we grew up. This is who I am. It actually probably has become part of your identity. You sometimes might even say, I'm this. Instead of saying I'm a Christian, you might even say, I'm this type of Christian. There are parts of us that we haven't even really given a lot of thought to that exist, that keep us away from different types of people that cause disunity in the church, that don't allow us to be unified with people. That Jesus would rather strip those things away so you understand the purity of what it means to know Jesus for yourself. And if we're not willing to be challenged by the word of God in every single way, then we're off. We're serving religion and not Christ. We're worshiping the Bible and not Jesus. We're worshiping our traditions and not Jesus. 
We're worshiping our religion and not Jesus. We're worshiping ourselves thinking that we can get to heaven through our own good deeds. The, the beginning of the gospel is breaking all of those things down to the purity of knowing Christ for yourself. It's an individual choice that you make to trade your identity, whatever it is that you grew up with, whatever it is that you bring into it, for the one that Jesus wants to create within you. And that's what he's doing here with Peter. This is only going to ramp up for Peter. He's going to be put in difficult situations that where he has to choose Jesus over religion. And I'm going to be honest with you. Religion kills. Jesus saves. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you even now challenge us? Would you even now show us places where we are unwilling, unrepentant, to change. God places in our heart where we know best and we know the traditions that we grew up with, the things that we're holding on to, God, that you want to strip away. Would you just show us what those are? Would you challenge us to again seek freshly in your word how it is you want us to live? God, would this be an incredibly unified place where people that come here feel like they are part of what is happening from day one? They would feel home they would feel welcome. This place would be open to new and different. And God, that we would see and believe and live out this idea that the gospel is good news for every person, every socioeconomic status, every race, every political persuasion, every single way that we divide ourselves in our identities. God, that the gospel would break through all of those things and create a unified family. God, that's what we want for this church to be. We want to honor you. We want to honor your gospel. We want this place to be home for everyone. Would you help us to strip away those parts that keep us from being able to do that and to focus in on what is the most important thing. In Jesus' name, amen.